Welcome and thank you for joining me in episode four of Galaxy Rise. This is the February 2019 edition of the show, and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. You dig deeper and it gets more and more complicated, and you get confused, and it's tricky, and it's hard, but it is beautiful. That's a quote by the British astrophysicist and modern philosopher Dr. Brian Cox, and it pretty much sums up my life right now. Between my personal life, fatherly responsibilities, and a full-time job, I'm now juggling, producing, and promoting this show, networking and doing regular research online, discovering and listening to lots of new music, running a weekly science club for about 15 kids, and taking an online astrophysics certificate program. So I'm indeed digging deep, adding complexity, invoking confusion, and finding it tricky and really hard. But I guess it really wouldn't change a thing. I couldn't have imagined I'd be in this position about a year ago, and so I'm really grateful that I was hit with this urge to push myself back in February of 2018. So again, thanks for indulging me with your continued interest and support in this quest. I quoted Dr. Brian Cox earlier, and for those that don't know, he's an internationally acclaimed scientist and a celebrity. He's got a prolific body of work, including books, TV shows, podcasts, and now a global live presentation on his Universal Adventures in Space and Time world tour. As combined reward and incentive, I treated myself to two tickets for this upcoming Boston, Massachusetts show at the historic Schubert Theater in April. I urge you to check out briancoxlive.co.uk to grab tickets and see if he's coming to a city near you. I also mentioned I was taking some astrophysics classes. Well, a bit of a stretch considering my last formal education was 24 years ago as I was wrapping up my theater degree. Um, yeah. But I found a sweet website called edx.org from the Harvard University and MIT collaboration, which started back in 2012. It offers a range of high-quality online courses from the world's best universities and institutions for learners everywhere. Uh, A quick search in its science section revealed many awesome introductory courses in a broad range of fields, including a four-course program called the Astrophysics X-Series program from the Australian National University. It consists of four foundational courses in astrophysics taught by Nobel Prize winner Brian Schmidt, who led the team that discovered dark energy, and educator, science communicator, and astrophysics researcher Paul Francis. If you're interested in this, go to www.edx.org slash xseries slash astrophysics and check it out.
Frechetti Technicolor right there with the Infinite Nothing 4 off the album, also called Infinite Nothing. The release is about 90 minutes of synth-based, luminous, spacious, ambient electronic music on Eclectic Reactions Records from Bilbao, Spain. This is a great album from the Greek producer and DJ Gianni Vercetti. You can buy this and many other great releases over at eclecticreactionrecords.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report. This month we'll be checking in on some recent space and aerospace news, as well as review the recent and upcoming rocket launch schedules. Privately held Blue Origins launched its new Shepard spacecraft on January 23rd. This marked the 10th ever suborbital flight for the company and the fourth of this particular first stage self-landing booster. Also attached was a crew capsule filled with 10 NASA-supported research payloads and experiments. The mission lasted for 10 minutes and 15 seconds with the instrument-packed crew capsule and booster separating several minutes after launch, prior to reaching the peak altitude of 66 miles. It's about 350,000 feet. The two craft are seen in launch footage, successfully separating, reaching apogee, and beginning their respective descents in a clear blue sky over the West Texas launch and recovery area. New Shepard is named after Alan Shepard, the first American to reach space, as well as a native of my own state of New Hampshire. It's a smaller of two rockets being developed by Blue Origins, brainchild of Amazon.com founder Jeff Bezos. The large but also self-landing heavy lift vehicle is called New Glenn after John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth. New Glenn is currently competing in a U.S. Air Force research project along with two other companies who are seeking to become primary go-tos for ongoing missions in the 2020s. JAXA, the Japanese space agency, successfully deployed a variety of payloads following the January 18th of a launch of an Epsilon rocket. This is the first of the Rapid Innovation Payload Demonstration Satellite Series, or RAPIS-1, which featured a variety of new systems. The small 1 meter by 1 meter craft deployed its thin membrane paddled shaped solar arrays demonstrated the effectiveness of small, low-toxicity propellant thrusters and a low-cost particle sensor. Also, deep learning software, which has aided maintaining position and orientation while observing Earth-based targets. Six other secondary payloads included a rather questionable artificial meteor proof-of-concept delivery system called AL-1. Designed to trigger in 2020, the craft will eventually lower its altitude to about 62 miles and deploy small pellets over the city of Hiroshima, resulting in a meteor shower visible to over 6 million people in a region about 125 miles across. Other payloads include the Earth-observing craft Microdragon and RiseSat, a multifunctional deployable membrane structure called OrgamiSat-1, the Velox-4, which is conducting thruster and imaging system tests for future lunar missions, and also the Nexus, a tiny 10 by 10 centimeter CubeSat that will demonstrate three new amateur satellite communication transmitters. Astronaut Luca Parmitano of the European Space Agency is actively preparing for his upcoming Beyond mission to the ISS this summer. The astronaut has been leveraging a powerful virtual reality simulator to navigate computer-generated environment to learn the route he may take outside the space station on a spacewalk. The simulation employs VR headgear and glove controllers, training him in the sequences and steps that are required, helping him learn how to make decisions and act more quickly during an actual spacewalk. The training facility is part of the Virtual Reality Lab at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Additionally, it's a bit of a refresher course as Luca flew to the space station back in 2013. 
He's brushing up on some new systems, safety procedures, robotic operations, and learning about the experiments he will conduct on the orbital outpost. He'll be launched for a six-month stay aboard the International Space Station in July as part of Expedition 60 and 61, alongside NASA astronaut Andrew Morgan and Roscosmos cosmonaut Alexander Svortsov. Luca will serve as space station commander during the second half of his mission. This will be the third time a European astronaut has held this leadership role, but the first time by an Italian astronaut. NASA researchers have been trying to understand how a new timeline of asteroid impacts on the moon challenges our understanding of the Earth's history in the young solar system. Using images and thermal data from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or LRO, scientists have developed a comprehensive timeline of large craters on the moon's surface. Comparing this data to the timeline of known Earth craters, they found that both bodies experienced the bombardment at the same time a revelation that contradicts the notion that the Earth had been subjected to many earlier impacts, but that the effects of which had been simply worn away by changing climate or geology. Researchers assume the Earth had experienced the same rate of impact as other bodies in the solar system. The new findings were based on detailed survey of lunar surface using LRO's thermal radiometer called Diviner. The device details how much heat is radiating off the Moon's surface, a critical factor in determining a crater's age. By looking at this radiated heat during the lunar night, scientists can calculate how much of the surface is covered by large, warm rocks versus cooler, fine-grained regolith, the lunar soil. Large craters formed by asteroid impacts in the last billion years are covered by boulders and rocks, while older craters have few rocks, Diviner data showed. This happens because impacts excavate lunar boulders that are ground into soil over tens to hundreds of millions of years by a constant rain of tiny meteorites. The team discovered that the rate of large crater formation on the moon had been two to three times higher over approximately the last 300 million years than it had been over the previous 700 million years. The reason for this jump may relate to large collisions taking place more than 300 million years ago in the main asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. The second surprise came from comparing the ages of large craters on the moon to those on Earth. Their similar number and ages challenges the theory that the Earth had lost so many craters through erosion. The Earth had fewer older craters on its most stable regions, not because of erosion, but because the impact rate was lower, said William Botke, co-author of the paper. This meant the answer to Earth's impact rate was staring right in everyone's face. The team included co-author Rebecca Gent and Sarah Mizrahi of the University of Toronto. Tom Gernon of the University of Southampton, William Botke, and Alex Parker from the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado. So in comparison to the past three months, January was off to a slow start for rocket launches, but it has picked up. On January 10th, China launched the Long March 3B, sending the ChinaSat-2 communications satellite to orbit. SpaceX launched the first Falcon of 2019 on the 11th sending the latest 10 satellites for the Iridium Next mobile communications fleet on a mission, which has been delayed for the past four months. Then on January 15th, in a controversial launch, Iran sent a Simorg rocket up from the Imam Khomeini spaceport, but unfortunately failed to place the Payami Amir Kabir Earth observation satellite into orbit. JAXA launched its Ypsilon rocket on January 18th, sending the Rapus-1 and its six secondary payloads on the rideshare mission. A long-delayed ULA launch of a Delta IV heavy rocket happened on the 19th, sending the top-secret NROL-71 spy satellite for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office to orbit. 
On January 21st, a Chinese Long March 11 rocket launched two hyperspectral imaging satellites for the Changguang Satellite Technology Company, plus two secondary smaller payloads. Blue Origins had its successful suborbital launch on January 23rd. Then on January 24th, the Indian Space Research Organization launched a new version of the PSLV, named PSLV-DL, with two strap-on solid boosters sending the Microsat-R imaging satellite and the Kalamsat student payload into low-Earth orbit. Coming up in February, on the 5th, Ariane Space will use an Ariane 5 ECA rocket to launch a Lockheed Martin-built Arabsat and the Saudi Arabian Helisat-4, the Saudi Geosat-1, as well as the ISRO's GSAT-31 communication satellite. February 7th, the Russian Soyuz will send the Egyptsat-A from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. On the 18th, SpaceX is hoping to launch the Falcon 9 with an Indonesian PSN-6 communications satellite and the privately funded Israeli Space IL's Lunar Lander and several smaller payloads in a rideshare mission to geostationary transfer orbit. Ariane Space will also launch a Soyuz rocket on February 19th, with first 10 satellites into orbit for OneWeb, which is developing a constellation of satellites for low-latency broadband communications. SpaceX is targeting February 23rd for its Falcon 9 launch of the Crew Dragon Demo-1 spacecraft on an uncrewed flight test to the ISS. Then on February 28th, three new crew members will launch to the International Space Station. NASA astronauts Nick Haig and Christina Hammack-Koch and Alexei Ovchin of the Russian Space Agency will lift off from Baikonur at about 7.42 Eastern Time. Tentatively in February, we hope to see the Rocket Lab launch of another electron rocket with a DARPA payload and ISRO hopes to launch two more of its PSLV rockets.
That's the first track off a new EP called The Pentagram from the artist and label called Soundtracking the Void. This song is Raven Sway, and the album is a really cool combination of acid riffs mixed with some nice trancey ambient. Buy this and other releases from the new label at soundtrackingthevoid.bandcamp.com. This month on the Hubble Moment, we're going to take a look back at the instrument itself, from its origins through the current status. Hubble was launched into low Earth orbit in 1990, and it's named after the 20th century astronomer Edwin Hubble. Dr. Hubble is known for being the first to propose the idea that the many faint fuzzy objects astronomers had been observing for centuries were indeed other galaxies outside of our own Milky Way. With a 2.4 meter mirror, Hubble's four main instruments observe the ultraviolet, visible, and near-infrared regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. Hubble's orbit outside the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere allows it to take extremely high-resolution images with substantially lower background light than ground-based telescopes. Hubble has recorded some of the most detailed visible light images ever, allowing a deep view into space and time. Many Hubble observations have led to breakthroughs in astrophysics, such as accurately determining the rate of expansion of the universe. The vision for the Hubble Space Telescope began in 1946 when astronomer Dr. Lyman Spitzer wrote a report that appeared in the appendix of a document compiled for Douglas Aircraft. He proposed designing, building, and launching an extraterrestrial observatory in Earth's orbit. It took decades for his groundbreaking idea to come to fruition, including the creation of NASA in 1958 and the funding and development of the Large Space Telescope in the 70s, an endeavor heavily influenced by the work of Dr. Nancy Roman, whose prolific life I covered in last month's show. In 1979, NASA issued a request for proposal for an independent Space Telescope Science Institute, now known as the STSI. After reviewing applications from prestigious institutions and universities, NASA selected the Association of Universities for Research and Astronomy, Aura in 1981, which named John Hopkins University's Homewood Campus in Baltimore, Maryland as its base of operations. NASA announced the Large Space Telescope's official name in 1983, the Hubble Space Telescope. The project was plagued by technical delays and budget problems. Then, in 1986, the Challenger disaster set things back even more. Hubble is the only telescope designed to be serviced in space by astronauts using the shuttle, and it was finally launched in 1990 by the shuttle Discovery. However, shortly after its successful orbital insertion, Hubble's main mirror was found to have a minute manufacturing error resulting in what's called spherical aberration, a flaw in which light reflecting off the edge of the mirror focuses on a different point from the light reflecting off its center causing light from any distant star to spread over a wide area instead of being concentrated on a few pixels. Clearly compromising the telescope's abilities, in 1993 plans began for the first of five subsequent Space Shuttle service missions. Fortunately, the error was well characterized and stable and it enabled astronomers to partially compensate for the defective mirror by using sophisticated image processing techniques such as deconvolution, which aided in sharpening the original blurry images. Engineers were able to determine the fix, which effectively involved giving the Hubble a large corrective contact lens, which they had three years to build and test, under much scrutiny of course. Eventually, shuttle astronauts would repair, upgrade, and replace nearly all the major systems on the telescope, including all observational, navigation, and gyroscope stabilization systems. Currently the Hubble consists of the following fully functional equipment. The Advanced Camera for Surveys, 
the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph, the Fine Guidance Sensors, the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph, and the Wide Field Camera 3. On January 8, 2019, Hubble entered a partial safe mode following a suspected hardware problem in the Wide Field Camera 3 instrument. NASA later reported that the cause of safe mode within the instrument was a detection of voltage levels out of a defined range. After resetting the telemetry circuits and associated boards, the instrument began functioning again. On January 17th, the device was returned to normal operation and on the same day, it completed its first science observations. Though there are other space and ground-based telescopes which excel in specific observation methods, the Hubble Space Telescope remains one of the most productive and well-rounded astronomical research tools. It is expected to continue operations through the 2020s, and estimates include well into the 2030s. That wraps up this brief history and a glimpse into the underlying technology of this venerable craft. Music right there from the album Mort de Calde Nord by the artist Takaslotet off the Lighten Up Sounds label. The album name means Towards the Cold North, and the artist indeed delivers on powerful and commanding atmospheres, combining the essence of Norse mythology. The segment is from the track Over Snodectafell, and you can pick this up digitally and on limited cassette release over at lightenupsounds.bandcamp.com. This month on Exclusively Exos, we're going to look at recent findings of a planet orbiting one of Earth's closest neighbors, the Barnard Star. Barnard Star can't be seen with the naked eye, and only came into awareness about a hundred years ago. Due to this, there's no mythology, constellation, or cultural tradition associated with it, but that hasn't stopped people's imaginations from creating new stories about the system. 
Long before the first exoplanetary detection, there were suggestions that Barnard star might have a family of planets. At the time, reported discrepancies in the motion of the star led to a claim that at least one Jupiter-sized planet, and possibly several, orbited it. Although the evidence was disputed and the claim largely discredited, there remained a chance of planetary discoveries. And indeed, in November 2018, an international team of astronomers announced it was 99% confident that a planet for Barnard star had now been found. The decades of rumors of planets for Barnard star secured the star's place in science fiction. It's featured in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, The Garden of Rama by Arthur C. Clarke and Gentry Lee, and several novels of physicist Robert L. Ford. In these works, the fictional planets of Barnard star are locations for early colonization or way stations for exploration into the cosmos. Barnard Star also was the hypothetical target of Project Daedalus, a design study by members of the British Interplanetary Society in which they envisioned an interstellar craft that could reach its destination within a human lifetime. Barnard Star B, also designated GJ699b, is believed to be a super-Earth-like planet with an icy surface. It orbits Barnard Star in the constellation of Ophiuchus. The planet technically remains a candidate, as it has been proposed with a confidence figure of 99%. The research team that made the discovery continued to perform observations to ensure that no improbable variations in brightness and motion of the star might account for the discovery. Direct imaging opportunities of the planet from large ground-based telescopes, or potentially the W-1st Space Telescope, are expected within the next decade, and there is an outside chance that a transit of the star might also allow for imaging. The planet was discovered through the use of radial velocity, the most common planet hunting technique. A wobble observed in Barnard star's motion was confirmed to have a period of about 233 days, corresponding to the influence of a proposed companion. The mass of the likely planetary body was then deduced to be about 3.2 Earth masses. Lead astronomer Ignacy Rivas notes that we used observations from seven different instruments spanning 20 years of measurements, making this one of the largest and most extensive data sets ever used for precise radio velocity studies. Barnard Star B is expected to be frigid, with a temperature of around negative 170 degrees Celsius. Its orbital distance, though close to the star by our own solar system standards, is around the snow line for Barnard Star, a dim red dwarf. The snow line is the point where volatile compounds such as water condense to form ice and thus outside the assumed habitable zone where temperatures are right for surficial liquid water. However, new research suggests that the heat generated by geothermal processes could warm pockets of water beneath the surface of the planet, potentially providing havens for life to evolve. This is the same condition we believe to be possible for Jupiter's moon Europa. It is believed that super-Earths may have the capability to produce geothermal heat energy sufficient to melt the ice frozen in places, creating large ice-covered lakes. Here on Earth, we observe this behavior in Antarctica, where ice sheets cover hundreds of lakes. The largest of these, Lake Vostok, is thought to contain a wide variety of organisms cut off from other life for millions of years. Researchers aren't sure exactly how large Barnard Star B really is, just that it's at least 3.2 times the mass of Earth. That would make it likely a rocky super-Earth. If our current information isn't accurate, and the planet instead is double that, it would be a smaller version of Neptune. Like our own Neptune, this type of gas giant would lack surface for life to evolve on and would most likely be not habitable. 
The James Webb Space Telescope, currently set for 2021, is capable of directly imaging this exoplanet. Given the host star's popularity and proximity, it is on the short list of top priority observations. Should JWST provide a dim planetary image, then that would support the prediction that this is a rocky, icy super-Earth. However, a bright image would support the small Neptune gas planet potential. If there is indeed life beneath the icy surface of Barnard Star B, future generations of telescopes could one day catch a glimpse of these signs of life. If the planet expels plumes, such as Europa occasionally has done, researchers could search for the organic material in those fountains. But that would require telescope technology that won't come until future decades. In other exoplanet research news, using the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or ALMA, in Chile, researchers observed a warped disk around an early protostar. This suggests that the misalignment of planetary orbits in many systems, including our own, may be caused by distortions in the planet-forming disk early in their existence. Researchers use our own solar system as a measuring tool and for comparison to the expected and revealed behaviors of other exoplanetary systems. The planets in the solar system orbit the Sun in planes that are almost at or about 7 degrees offset from the equator of the Sun itself. It has been known for some time that many exoplanetary systems have planets that are not lined up with a single plane or with the equator of the star. One explanation for this is that some of the planets might have been affected by collisions with other objects in the system or by stars passing through the system, ejecting them from the initial plane. The possibility remained that the formation of planets out of normal plane was actually caused by a warping of the star-forming cloud out of which the planets were born. In the latest findings, researchers from the Ricken Cluster for Pioneering Research and Chiba University in Japan have discovered that L1527, an infant protostar still embedded within a cloud, has a disk that has two distinct parts, an inner one rotating in one plane and an outer one in a different plane. The disk is very young and still growing, and it's a good object for study as it's nearly edge-on to our view. Protoplanetary disks around young stars are the birthplaces of planetary systems. Most of their mass is in the form of molecular hydrogen with small mixtures and other solid particles. The initial tiny particles grow through mutual collisions to form larger sized bodies until further growth potentially assisted by gravitational instabilities in giant layers of dust. At the end of this process, rocky planets can form. If enough mass is available, the central cores attract gas envelopes, a process that leads to the formation of giant planets. In the outer regions of massive disks, gravitational instabilities may trigger the formation of massive planets. The properties of gas-rich disks depend on the spectral type of the central star, the star formation environment, and other parameters such as metallicity. Researchers aim to establish the connection between disk properties and the structure of planetary systems. In the gas-rich protoplanetary disks, planets can migrate and open gaps if they are massive enough. These are also chemical factories leading to the formation of water and even complex organic molecules. How water is delivered to rocky extrasolar planets is one of the most fascinating scientific questions researchers want to answer.
That's the band Burning Tapes off their brand new soundtrack for a demonic horror film called Black Lake on Burning Witches Records. The track is called Psych, and it's my favorite off the album. Many of the tracks possess an eerie ambience buffeted with heavy analog synth and guitar manipulations. You can preview and purchase this over at burningallwitches.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control! Back on December 17th, Bepi Colombo, the ESA Mercury mission, conducted the first of 22 routine thrusts using its four ion engine thrusters. The seven-year mission began in late fall when the craft launched on an Ariane space rocket from French Guiana on October 20th, 2018. After meticulous testing of the spacecraft's four high-tech ion thrusters, the team had fired up the spacecraft for its first thruster burn arc. Traveling 9 billion kilometers in total, Bepi Colombo will make nine flybys at Earth, Venus, and Mercury, looping around the Sun 18 times. To do this, the ESA Combo JAXA mission will be steered by 22 thruster burn arcs, each providing the same acceleration from less fuel compared to traditional high energy chemical burns that last minutes or hours. This first arc will last two months. In the morning, before the thrusters began firing, Bepi Colombo was slewed to the correct position. As the orientation shifted, the spacecraft's high-gain antenna swiveled to maintain communication with ground stations on Earth, an event demonstrated nicely in an animated GIF released by ESA. Next, Bepi Colombo's solar arrays were tilted to fully face the sun, as full power is needed to power the ion thrusters. By early afternoon, Bepi Colombo had begun to fire. The team watched with concentration and relief as graphs showed that the spacecraft was gaining in momentum, as one of its thrusters went from the initial thrust level of 75 millinewtons up to 108 millinewtons. Bepi Colombo's maximum planned thrust level for the entire journey is 250 millinewtons, with two thrusters each firing at 125 millinewtons. This is the equivalent to 250 ants pulling the four-ton Bepi Colombo spacecraft all the way to the innermost planet of the solar system. The solar electric propulsion system has four T6 thrusters for redundancy, with one or two operating at a time. Ion thrusters use beams of ions, which are electrically charged atoms, to create low thrust in accordance with momentum conservation. The drawback of the low thrust is low acceleration, because the mass of the electric power unit directly correlates with the amount of power. This low thrust makes ion thrusters unsuited for launching spacecraft into orbit, but really effective for in-space propulsion. An ion drive would require two days to accelerate a car to highway speeds. Bepi Colombo used planetary flybys combined with these regular ion engine burns before its final effort to achieve Mercury orbit in 2025. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has been cruising along into uncharted territory as it made its first pass behind the sun. Parker flew much closer to the sun's surface than any other probe ever and sent back its first photos from the inside of the sun's atmosphere. NASA released the photos on December 12th. Flying inside the corona, the part of the sun we see in the photos of total solar eclipses, the craft was only 16.9 million miles from the sun's surface. Consider that the Earth itself is 93 million miles and that Mercury is about 36 million miles from the sun. In one of these images released, there's bright streaks coming from the left side. These are the jets of the material called coronal streamers, emanating from the sun itself, which is just out of view. The image also contains some spots. The brightest one is Mercury in the distance, the first time we're seeing a planet from the sun's own perspective. 
Scientists have been waiting more than 60 years for a mission like Parker Solar Probe. Understanding that Corona is pivotal to answering fundamental questions about our sun and the formation of the whole solar system. We've always said that we don't know what to expect until we look at the data, said project scientist Noah Ryofi at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. The data we have received hints at many new things that we have not seen before and at potential new discoveries. Parker Solar Probe is delivering on the mission's promise of revealing the mysteries of our sun. On January 19th, the craft completed its first orbit of the sun, reaching the point in its orbit farthest from our star called Aphelion. Parker has now begun the second of 24 planned orbits, on track for its second perihelion with the closest approach to the sun on April 4th, 2019. NASA's Mars Atmospheric and Volatile Evolution Mission, or MAVEN spacecraft, recently celebrated four years in orbit, studying the upper atmosphere of the red planet and its interactions with the sun and solar wind. To mark the occasion, the team has released a selfie image of the spacecraft at Mars. MAVEN has been a tremendous success, says Bruce Joukowsky, MAVEN principal investigator from the University of Colorado Boulder. The spacecraft and instruments continue to operate as planned, and we're looking forward towards further exploration of the Martian upper atmosphere and its influence on climate. The mission launched on November 18, 2013 and went into orbit around Mars on September 21, 2014. During its time at Mars, MAVEN has answered many questions about the red planet. Next year, engineers will initiate aerobraking maneuver by skimming the spacecraft through Mars's upper atmosphere to slow it down. This will reduce the highest altitude in MAVEN's orbit to enhance its ability to serve as a communications relay for data from robotic craft on the surface. Currently, MAVEN carries out several relay passes per week since the arrival of InSight in November. MAVEN completed its primary mission back in November 2015 and has been operating in an extended mission mode since that time, continuing its productive investigation of Mars's upper atmosphere and exploring additional opportunities for science that the new relay orbit will bring. And many nations have begun their efforts to stake their claim on the moon recently. A cotton seed carried to the moon by China's Chang'e 4 probe is the first ever to sprout on the moon. After making the first ever soft landing on the far side of the moon, Chang'e 4 pioneered the first mini-biosphere experiment on the moon. The Chang'e 4's probe carried the seeds of cotton, potato, and arabidosis, as well as fruit fly eggs and yeast. Images sent back by the probe showed that a cotton sprout had grown well, though no other plants were found growing. China's successful lunar germination proposes that it might not be that difficult for astronauts to grow crops on the moon in a controlled environment. In February, Israel's Bereshit spacecraft will launch from Cape Canaveral on a SpaceX Falcon 9. Bereshit, which is the Hebrew word for beginning, is expected to land on the lunar surface in April. The mission was born out of Google's Lunar XPRIZE competition to land an unmanned probe on the moon. The $30 million competition was scrapped with no winner last year after the organizer said none of the five finalists would make the March 31, 2018 deadline. Nonetheless, the Israeli team pressed on with the development of its 397-pound spacecraft. After its two-month journey, the probe will land within Mare Serenitatis in the moon's northern hemisphere. SpaceIL notes that the site has magnetic anomalies, enabling Bereshit's magnometer device to take measurements as part of a scientific experiment. Data from the magnetometer, which was developed by Israel's Wiseman Institute of Science, will be shared with NASA. Our ultimate aim is to create a profile of the magnetic field of the moon and understand its origin, says mission science lead Oded Aronson. 
Also, India is poised to launch its Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, lander, and rover mission in April 2019. They will attempt to land the lander and rover in a high plane between two craters, Manzanus C and Simplius N, at a latitude of about 70 degrees south. If successful, Chandrayaan-2 will be the second mission to land a rover near the lunar south pole. According to ISRO, the mission will use and test various new technologies and conduct new experiments. The wheeled rover will move on the lunar surface and will perform on-site chemical analysis. The data will be relayed to Earth through the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, which will piggyback on the same mission. As we near the 50th anniversary of our own footsteps on the moon with Apollo, it's great to see such activity on our closest neighbor. Since we first began exploring space, there have been over 50 robotic spacecraft successfully flying past, orbiting, impacting, or landing on the moon. This includes 19 landers and 6 rovers. discovered this really great album called Ether Awe by UK musician Stephen Hadfield. I really love the softer side of the early 90s IDM vibe he's got going on in this album. The track is called The Ends of Invention and it's released on the Disintegration State label, which Hadfield co-founded with fellow artist Chris Illis, who performs as Lowering. Check out all the label's excellent releases over at disintegrationstate.bandcamp.com. This month on Unlikely Encounters, I'm addressing the alluring notion of ancient aliens. The 1970s was a decade which many pseudoscientific theories emerged and gained major public attention following the 60s flower power movement. Belief in astrology, the tarot, crystals, and energy channeling supported the ideas of telepathy, precognition, paranormal communication, and yes, alien visitations. 
1968, Eric von Däniken published a book that would make him an international icon. Von Däniken spent much of the 60s trying to publish his ideas on aliens and mythology, but instead was preoccupied with keeping himself out of jail due to theft, jewelry fraud, embezzlement, and lying on loan applications related to a scam he pulled on a hotel he worked at. Von Däniken hired Nazi propagandist Utz Uderman to rewrite his manuscript of Chariots of the Gods per the request of his publisher. The book became an international bestseller, translated across many languages, and secured his future icon status, enough so that he secured a deal and wrote his second book while in prison serving one year out of a three-year sentence for having lived a playboy lifestyle for the years prior during this whole hotel swindling phase. The general claim of Van Daniken over several published books starting with Chariots of the Gods in 1968 is that extraterrestrials, or ancient astronauts, visited Earth and influenced human culture. Van Daniken writes about his belief that the structures, such as Egyptian pyramids, Stonehenge, and the Moai of Easter Island and artifacts from the period represent higher technological knowledge than is presumed to have existed at the times they were manufactured. He also describes ancient artwork throughout the world as containing depictions of astronauts, air and space vehicles, extraterrestrials, and complex technology. Von Daniken explains the origins of religions as reactions to contact with an alien race, and offers interpretations of sections of the Old Testament of the Bible. Chariots of the Gods was adapted to film in 1970 and nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature that year. Grossing over $25.9 million at the box office over the years it ran in theaters. American TV legend Rod Serling narrated an edited version of the film called In Search of Ancient Astronauts. For the first of three one-hour documentaries produced by Alan Landsberg in 1973, Serling also narrated In Search of Ancient Mysteries and The Outer Space Connection. The success of these documentaries, seen widely in theaters and schools across the U.S., led to the creation of In Search Of, a TV show starring Leonard Nimoy which ran for six seasons from 1977 to 1982. As far as I was concerned, everything I saw in In Search Of was truth. Without a doubt, all of these amazing and mysterious things existed, and the most sacred of them all was ancient astronauts. The pure notion of human-like travelers visiting us from across space and or time to sculpt and craft our civilization was just mind-blowing. I just really wanted this to be true. As I grew older, I eventually became more comfortable with the notion that I was an atheist, but I still held on to a lot of the paranormal and fantasies attached with religious mythology. I may not have believed in God, but interdimensional time-traveling ancient aliens selectively intervening in human evolution was okay by me. Obviously, this theory has drawn largely negative reception from the academic mainstream, despite the popularity of the books, author, movies, and TV shows. Many scientists and historians have rejected his ideas, claiming that his conclusions were based on faulty pseudoscientific evidence, some of which was later demonstrated to be fraudulent or fabricated, and under illogical premises. For example, Ronald Story wrote a book rebutting Von Daniken's ideas in 1976 titled The Space Gods Revealed. A similar internationally best-selling book called Crash Go the Chariots was written by Clifford Wilson and had already been published in 1972. Soon after the publication of Chariots of the Gods, Van Daniken was accused of stealing the ideas of French author Robert Charot. In a 2004 article in Skeptic Magazine, Daniken was accused of plagiarizing many of the book's concepts from The Morning of Magicians, a collection of raw material for speculation of the most outlandish order. And his theories of the book were also heavily influenced by the Thulu mythos, 
And the core of the ancient astronaut theory originates in H.P. Lovecraft's stories The Call of Thulu and At the Mountains of Madness. One artifact offered up as evidence in the book has been disclaimed by Van Daniken himself. Chariots asserts that a supposedly rust-free pillar in India was evidence of extraterrestrial influence, but Von Daniken admitted in a Playboy interview that the pillar was man-made, and that as far as supporting his theories goes, quote, we can forget about this iron thing, unquote. Neither this nor any of the other discredited evidence has ever been removed from subsequent editions of Chariots of the Gods. Another book commonly cited in the development of Daniken is Spaceships of Ezekiel by former NASA design engineer Joseph Blumrich, who also wrote a summary article, The Spaceships of the Prophet Ezekiel. And we're still hearing about all of this even today. The popular Ancient Aliens show premiered in 2009 on the History Channel and had a two-hour special in 2018, marking its 13th season. I actually attended a presentation and a meet-and-greet with Giorgio Tsoukalos, the crazy-haired it's Aliens meme guy back in 2012. He's quite congenial and he's fun to listen to. Needless to say, my no way is there God self believed everything he said. In hindsight, I'm shocked I just didn't laugh the whole time. In an excerpt from his speech at the University of New Hampshire where I saw him, he states, I took anthropology and archaeology courses in school, but I do not have a degree in archaeology and I'm extremely thankful that I don't have that paper on my wall that says I'm an archaeologist. I'm a renegade archaeologist, and the ancient aliens theory does not fit into the anthropologist's carefully cobbled together house of cards, but I am the one who is at the bottom, trying to pull at the bottom card. So he's thankful he doesn't have a degree in what he professes to be an expert, but for whatever reason, his actual sports communication degree worked just fine for him making good money as a bodybuilding industry marketer of some sort. Jason Colavito, a fellow Ithaca graduate and relative contemporary of Tsukalis, blogged back in 2003 on his site, jasoncolavito.com, that while getting his degree in archaeology and communications, the professors there in those years were nothing like the dogmatic stereotypes noted by Tsukalis. Here are a few of his observations. For many years, one of my professors, Dr. Michael Malpass, a specialist in Peruvian archaeology, actually led a freshman seminar on ancient astronauts, an entire course devoted to exploring the ancient astronaut theory, though one meant to teach critical thinking about why the idea was wrong. And the standard course on world prehistory required for anthropology major also included material on Atlantis, ancient aliens, and other pseudo-archaeological ideas as examples of popular understandings of archaeology. And finally, Given what I know about the same professors and courses that Tsukalis would have encountered, it's rather clear that his anti-academic posturing is an act designed to appeal to the anti-elitist attitudes of his primary audiences, disaffected college students, and those non-elites left out of the half-hearted economic recovery. What's really sad is that Tsukalis could have taken the courses from careful, intelligent, and dedicated archaeologists and anthropologists and learned absolutely nothing from them, worse than nothing actually given that he can't even correctly cite the most basic of archaeological work or ancient material. I'm committing a serious ad hominem fallacy here, and it's really hard not to do. Ad hominem is the Latin term, and it's the argumentative strategy whereby genuine discussion of a topic is avoided. Instead, I attack the character, motive, or other attributes of the person making the argument, or persons that's associated with the argument, rather than attacking the substance of the argument itself which is basically what I've done here for Danikin and Tsukalis, two people who've instilled really nothing but hope and wonder in my life. I feel somewhat obliged to do this, though. 
As I'm still coming to terms with how I was just simply taken by the big con and suckered into believing these fabrications for nearly four decades of my life, simply accepting the precedence as fact because of the allure of fantasy, without question. Doug Walton, as a Canadian academic and author, has argued that ad hominem reasoning is not always fallacious, and that in some instances, questions of personal conduct, character, motives, etc., are legitimate and relevant to the issue, as when it involves hypocrisy or actions contradicting the subject's words. The philosopher Charles Taylor has argued that ad hominem reasoning is essential to understanding certain moral issues due to the connection between individual persons and morality, or moral claims, and contrasts this to their reasoning involving widely established facts. The lesson here really isn't why their claims are wrong, but why they're little more than snake oil salesmen. The con is in spreading this idea and playing to people's fantasies, tapping into this widespread ignorance of the scientific method, and replacing biblical spirituality with mythic alien influence. So I'll end with this quote from the essay, Ancient Aliens, Evidence of Stephen Hawking's Claim That Philosophy Is Dead, by Barry Vacker, published in July 2018 on Medium.com. In the wake of the Trump presidency, there has been much discussion of alternative facts and fake news. These phenomena are just the tip of the iceberg for the 24-7 electronic consciousness and its alternative epistemologies. Alternative facts and epistemologies are necessary to maintain the regimes of domination, as Orwell understood. In Chariots of the Gods and Ancient Aliens, virtually all of the so-called evidence and arguments provided by the theorists are myth, superstition, hearsay, anecdotal, or involve an inference to conclusion that is fallacious, implausible, or unknowable. The evidence and arguments also contain inaccuracies, mistaken assumptions, unrelated facts, and false similarities. The few remaining pieces of evidence, which are a tiny fragment of the absurd claims, are simple mysteries yet to be solved, or mysteries that will never be solved. Virtually all of the claims of extraterrestrial influence on ancient aliens assumes that human consciousness and civilization have very little creativity, originality, or ability to innovate. The general idea is that, without assistance from the ancient astronauts, humans would be helpless and could never build such great structures or make profound scientific discoveries. Plus, the show assumes that there's no room for chance, surprise, emergence, singularities, or any insight of chaos and the complexity theory. In the end, the series represents an assault on rationality and scientific methods, not unlike all other paranormal movies and TV shows.
That's Gavin Miller right there off his latest release, Three Days. That's the second track, something called Three Days Second. And the album is six tracks of lush, synthy ambience, complete with violin performed by Sophie Green. Miller produces music on his own, and also as part of the band Worried About Satan. You can buy this and check out other releases over at gavinmiller.bandcamp.com. Wrapping up the show, we've got Night Vision. So I've had a really hard time getting outside for any practical observing this month. Between the cold temps on clear nights and fewer warmer but cloudy nights, it's been pretty much a bunk effort. The winter skies in my area are beautiful this time of year, and seeing is amazing. The challenge of braving the cold is just something I'm not prepared to do with my viewing options, being as limited as they are with my current scope setup. I really need to upgrade my eyepiece selection to increase the range of objects I can actually see. Right now, stars, clusters, the galactic smudge of Andromeda, or the Orion Nebula are all I can really eke out, and I love doing that. But I really want to be able to find the next layer of deep sky objects that if I hunt for, I can actually see. Chasing that 46p Wirtnin last month was a lot of fun, and because the comet was clearly observable with my kit, when I found it, it was satisfying and the cold didn't really matter. So it's clear that if I have better eyepieces, which I can see further away objects, I'll be really setting myself up for a wide bounty of huntable targets. I've got a recent recommendation for a good eyepiece and a smartphone bracket combo for performing some astrophotography. My new Twitter friend Grant Peterson from the Land Down Under posted some gorgeous photos of the moon and then Jupiter and its four moons, all with the same size and style scope that I have, but with a 7mm eyepiece and a specific type of smartphone adapter. I've got these queued up to purchase in February if all goes as planned. That eyepiece will also increase my visible range for general observing. Grant maintains that it's got a nice wide field of view, so I'm hopefully going to be able to switch from my current eyepiece to this new 7mm one and not be thrown too badly by the reduced field of view you get when you increase magnification with an eyepiece. So I'm pretty sure most of you heard about the Superblood Wolf Moon Lunar Eclipse back on January 21st. When the moon nears its perigree, it's described as a supermoon. Perigree is the closest that the moon comes to the Earth in an elliptical orbit, resulting in a slightly larger than usual apparent size of the moon as viewed from Earth. As this supermoon was also a wolf moon, which is the first full moon in a calendar year, it was referred to as Superblood Wolf Moon. And of course the blood refers to the typical red color of the moon during a total lunar eclipse. This is also the last total lunar eclipse until May 2021. Well, that night just so happened to be the day on which we had our most recent big snowstorm here in the United States Northeast. It blanketed much of the region from Washington, D.C. all the way up to the northern parts of Maine. The eclipse began around 10.30, and we were fortunate that all of the weather had cleared out the entire region by about 8 p.m. Lingering clouds made for sporadic viewing of the moon, but I was able to catch the entire first half of the whole eclipse before clouds finally went over. I ran outside every 10 minutes or so to catch the transition from the bright full moon to the first stages of totality, where the Earth's shadow is completely covering the moon. The first hint of shadow cutting into the moon looked like a small scalped out cut in the lower left side of the lunar disk. Then as it moved somewhat diagonally up and to the right, caused the moon to become more of a thin crescent and eventually fully covered. 
The last bit of bright sunlit moon in the upper right was so bright when I looked at it through my binoculars. I did manage to see some really cool shadows along the edge and many craters as the shadow crept across the face of the moon. I didn't realize and didn't expect that it would appear so differently as the eclipse progressed, but the details of the illuminated portion really did change and it evolved as it ran its course. A quick search on January 2019 lunar eclipse images will generate a large volume of stunning eclipse photography. I highly recommend you check it out. Amateurs and professionals alike went to great lengths to capture amazing time-lapse sequences of the eclipse, with many being set against beautiful urban and rural backgrounds. This is truly a conveniently timed and widely accessible celestial event that folks in all of North America and much of Europe were able to enjoy. Hey, this wraps up this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians and labels and science communicators who've helped make this show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios, and it's hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy. Search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube, or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Until next month, clear skies.